Tattoo Friday podcast listeners, welcome back. It's uh, Sam. Kenny, what's up, dude? Sam, how are you, buddy? I'm good, man. Hey, it's great to be back uh, chatting. I know I missed out uh, with the Commander Barris episode. Uh, sounded like you guys had a really good chat with him. Um, that was my first time actually not being a voice, like, for that one or two listeners out yeah, there. Yeah, we, we made a point of it. Dude, it was good. Good for you guys. Um, so, yeah, we cut, what, we cut in half of the HAI episode. Got some good stuff to chat about. But before we do that, we have none other than the godfather himself, Nate Shakespeare. I think founding father. Founding, fa- founding father. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go. And he's actually sitting in front of us, uh, in front of a microphone. What's up, dude? Not much. Excited to be back in uh, Mobile, Our- the heart of Coast Guard Aviation, for a little P-Course action. Is that a true statement? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's great being back here. Nice. Mobile's uh, not as nice as Southern California, <laughs> uh, but, it, the you know, ATC is a, a special place, so I'm super excited to be back. Uh, I had a awkward welcome aboard sign or welcome home sign uh, from, <laughs> from the skipper on the way on the base on uh, Memorial Day, so that was cool. But, uh, yeah, excited to be back. Gotta, yeah. lo- gotta love that welcome home speech. That's probably the first time you've had it sitting on the other side of the table, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, every, lots of firsts. First be course in like eight years on the wrong side of the microphone here. It's great. Yeah. Captain uh, Holzer, hashtag welcome home, hashtag Midas Touch. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Hey, man, last time we chatted with you, uh, you were eating a delicious stack of pancakes in Camarillo because we it's called true, you because yep. you blew the floats uh, or were in the aircraft, I'm guessing, when the floats were blown uh, in a 65. Sure. Yep. I was the PIC when the floats were blown. So you yep, was my mishap. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for getting us some new artwork for a flight suit Friday. <laughs> yeah, so we can dude. get that because that thing is from like late 1990s. Or was that Sam, Sanborn's? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. We, we'll get it updated. I'm not surprised that he was the one who blew the floats though. That man's done everything in a 65. <laughs> yeah. Except maybe barrel roll, but who knows? Maybe he did that. We maybe don't know. Maybe he did it. Let's hope not. Uh, dude, what happened? So there we were. Uh, so after leaving ATC, finally, uh, headed out to Magoo, started flying the Delta again. Uh, had a lot of fun in Southern California. I know you both, you guys were stationed in San Francisco and did mm-hmm. tons of trips down there, um, but having lots of fun. Um, in January, we had uh, the Santa Ana's raging. Uh, so what happens then is we get significant winds coming from the desert mm-hmm. and we get huge, huge winds at Magoo. I think a couple of years ago, Maybe when you guys were there, we had a plane in the chocks spin around 180 degrees. Mm. So we see winds up of like uh, upwards of 60, 70 knots sometimes uh, in isolated areas. Um, so big wind day um, uh, and just worried about how bumpy it is out there and everything. We yeah. had um, on the schedule like a CD AMI O patrol out by Catalina. Mm-hmm. So after having some discussion, we, d- we decided to go. Um, it was like probably borderline with the conditions, just like, big uh, Air Met Tango for the whole area, like the entire LA basin and everything. So rather than our normal route out and um, kind of departing on the south side of the uh, Santa Monica Mountains and cruising east and headed to Catalina, mm-hmm. we just pointed right offshore. It just went way out. Yeah, big yeah. cat's paws going out like several miles um, from the mountains. So it was a very bumpy day. Um, on the backside of Catalina, like the south side, it was a little bumpy and everything, but did our patrol, didn't find any buffalo, unfortunately. Did you um, get cookies? Didn't get any cookies. Oh, didn't find on, any buffalo. Man. It was a big letdown. Yeah. And, and no TOIs, I guess, more, most importantly. No, that's, that's what the Coast Guard's paying us big, to go there for. Yeah, biggest point there. So didn't find any TOIs. Coming back uh, with uh, my co-pilot, awesome uh, first tour, um, uh, Delta Pod, great great guy down from San Francisco for the two weeks. And we are trying to work on MINS in January, new period. So let's uh, knock out our VLD catches. Good for you. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Training the next generation. Let's go. <laughs> Um, but, uh, if you're familiar with the area, we are Southwest of Anish, like, uh, avoiding the Bravo. Um, it's probably like 40 miles, maybe 45 miles mm-hmm. from Catalina back to Magoo. And, uh, with the heavy winds, we st- decided to do our catches pretty far offshore. Just like, Hey, let's just take the, the wind and like the downdrafts and everything totally out of the equation. It's nice and calm out here. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, getting towards sunset. So it's like, okay, we don't need cover. If we do this before sunset, if we cruise all the way back to Magoo, like, we're probably flirting with it a little bit. So we'll do this early. Um, in hindsight, maybe I'm not doing uh, catches super far offshore What's again. What's super far offshore? How far uh, were you? We were like probably 35 miles offshore. Oh, okay. So, uh, some distance. But right. you, were you like right by the LA, in the LA basin? So yeah, we, it looks offshore, but it's not that far really. Right, right. It doesn't yeah. look very far. And we we're probably only like 10 miles away from Catalina. Yeah, so okay. It, 
it sounds like a little crazy, but you can see land in like all directions just off cat. Like it seems very reasonable to do that. It might sound not like on paper, but mm -hmm. it was a very, in my opinion, like at the time, very reasonable spot to do some catches. So I uh, did my VLD catch, uh, standard calls and everything, came back up, uh, got set up for my uh, co-pilots, um, did, did the catch down. Hey, not visual execute uh, ITO um, and got a big kind of like a boom as if we hit like a mega pothole <laughs> and, uh, and a, a noise, like a smell and a, a pretty good thud. And um, uh, definitely heard some stuff not on ICS, but didn't really need ICS to hear what, what was being screamed from the, <laughs> from the other seat. Um, and uh, so I took the controls, uh, tried to figure out what was going on and took my brain a second. And then I processed these giant uh, bags inflating outside the side of the aircraft. So Bottom of the catch, uh, went to hit go around and just hit the wrong button. So Dang. just just a bummer. So, <laughs> oh man, that's such a bummer, dude. Yeah, I'll tell you though, like from the PIC perspective, mm -hmm. great great thing to happen. Like, there's nothing I could have done to control guard that. I remember at Mobile, I would talk about that uh, before going to do like the day water flights. It's like, hey, I can't control guard. Like, you just can't hit the wrong button. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing like the brakes, right? Like, you can't control guard against the brakes. You know, like, if you get them above 30 or 38, like, we, we're broken. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, we, so we're at the bottom of a catch, probably like 50, 75 feet leveled off. Uh, we're off the modes pretty quick. I took the controls. Um, got uh, the co-pilot's uh, VLD off and uh, just started to figure out what, what the plan was. Um, we're, we're pretty far offshore still, uh, so kind of trucking home towards Magoo. And uh, I was really surprised the floats uh, actually give you a considerable amount of feedback. Uh, I texted Christian Polyak uh, after I landed, and he said, only you would complain about the helicopter <laughs> flying <laughs> dynamics with the, with the floats inflated. Um, but it felt bad. Like I, I really? had like significant concerns. So we we're trying to figure out how fast we could go. So at this point we, you were so worried about flying, not what memes and stuff you were going to do to the copilot when you no. got back and landed. Yeah. It was one thing at a time. So okay. the okay. memes were a consideration, like pretty quickly, you know, we're definitely, uh, putting some trash bags on the side of his car and everything like that. That's happening. Um, but yeah, one thing at a time. So talked about as a crew, we're all doing good. The gears up, you know, just to finish the the whole catch thing, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, we're working our way back. Um, the feedback and the cyclic had a, like a lot of roll feedback to the point where I asked him pretty quickly. I was like, "Hey, man, are you on the controls?" Like, I felt like someone was like pulsing left and right in the cyclic to the point where like the AFCS was like, totally saturated. Like, it could not keep up with the you know the inputs from the aerodynamics, I Dang, guess. Dude. And like, you're, you're definitely hand flying if, if you uh, happen to pop the floats. Um, so yeah, we're working our way back. What speed were you guys going? We were doing like 30 initially, like 30 knots just yeah. at the bottom. And then uh, as we're accelerating, it, we got progressively more feedback, both in like the cyclic uh, kind of roll inputs and also the bags kind of flopping around and, and starting to make some noise. Mm -hmm. um, so I had some actual concerns about just like flying handle like handling qualities, flying characteristics. Um, so I decided to fly back. I think in general, um, depending on the type of EP, I'd probably rather be the safety pilot for a lot of like more stressful things. You know, you're doing that ILS to men's. If you're the PIC, like I probably want my like first pilot or co-pilot or something like that to fly. I want to be the guy at the bottom, uh, guy or gal to make the decision like, Hey, we're going to break out and continue this approach to landing or something. Yeah. Um, but I was uncomfortable enough that I was like, I I'm flying this. If uh, the feedback changes or anything, like I want to be the one that like sees that progress and make some sort of a call or something like that. So, uh, you know, having someone with a uh, considerably less experience, like try to give you some feedback like that, just like the transmission could be a little, you know, a little tricky. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, we're working our way back to Magoo. Um, we have a big headwind, like, uh, probably 20 knots, something like that. Um, and we were only able to do maybe 50 or 55 was like uncomfortable. Um, so our speed of the ground is low. So yeah. we're, we're like looking at 45 minutes to a little bit longer to get back to Magoo and it's fine, but it was like, oh, okay. Fuel is definitely a concern. And unfortunately in the Delta, you know, we don't have any, anything helping you out to do the fuel. And then the 65 community, if there's any 60 listeners, we're all just slaves to the, um, the bingo, like whatever it tells you, that's, that's when you're, no, you got to come home. So mm -hmm. 
the D uh, just assumes you're going like max blast uh, back home and we were definitely not going very fast. So super loss of like efficiency if That's you think about it that way. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Um, yeah. Just, just a lot, a lot of distance left to cover. We, um, uh, we got our bearings, decided to call sector, told sector LA like, Hey, we blew the floats. They're like, uh, Roger, ops in position, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. They, they don't necessarily know that. And that's not their fault. Um, we, we actually have a great, great sector down there. So, um, as soon as we like pimped them with like, Hey, we need some help. Like, Hey, can you call Baywatch something? They're very helpful. Yeah. Um, having a lot of, uh, or some familiarity with AOR knew like Baywatch was the closest asset, especially the way we were going coming out of like, uh, you know, Marina Del Rey, uh, they'd be, or perhaps Malibu. Um, if, if we had to like, if the flying characteristics got worse and we like decide to, uh, land in the water or something like that, you know, they're the closest asset. So called those guys still trucking back towards, um, towards Magoo. And we're at like maybe a hundred feet, still 30 knots, uh, over the ground. Uh, had a discussion amongst the crew, like, Hey, should we engage ATC on this? I'm definitely not one shy to declare an emergency or call them in fuel or something like that. And mm-hmm. again, we have like fantastic air traffic control services in, uh, in SoCal. So, um, we decided that we're just going to add more confusion. We already got sector pretty excited. We already got Baywatch super excited. We're only at a hundred feet. So I'm not sure exactly how much ATC could see us. Um, but we, we kind of made the decision like, Hey, let's, let's just keep it a, a little bit more simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're trucking home, just looking at the fuel calcs and the, uh, the sun on the horizon and starting to go down, uh, we decided to make a, a little bit of a right turn and head to uh, Point Doom and went, went and aimed at uh, Zuma. Uh, unfortunately, with the Santa Ana's, that means we're accepting some like gnarly uh, downdrafts and, and significant wind. Um, but it saved probably like 15 minutes of flight time. So yeah, I, I would do the same thing again, but it did make it a, a little more sporty on the, uh, on the landing coming over the beach. So 90 knots, uh, floats inflated definitely can fly at 90 knots. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> probably like, I suspect maybe the limits there, if you're at 90 and blow the floats, perhaps it doesn't just like rip, rip the chines off. off of the aircraft. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I cannot fly at 90 knots. That's, um, that's yeah. crazy. I was going to ask, um, what did you guys end up landing fuel wise? Uh, I think we ended up landing with like <clears throat> 400 or 450 or something. Like we had plenty of gas. We definitely could have made it back to Magoo, but the option was, you know, I would like to not be on the air, in the air anymore. Like it, yeah. it was time to be on the ground. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, 20, 30 minutes of, uh, of flying, working back. So um, excited to, to land uh, at, at Zuma there. But I think the, the fuel part of that is, Really interesting because I remember you first told me that this happened. It was like, man, what would happen if you were planning on coming back with a 200 pound, 250 pound bingo, which is not uncommon. Or even 400. Like we came back early because it was bumpy. Yeah. Yeah. And that happened. And now you're like, uh oh. Yeah. Like big uh oh. Uh oh. We're we're not going to make it. Um, In this case, you probably could have turned around and at least gone to uh, Catalina, Catalina, right? (laughs) You pick up a a tailwind, but if that island wasn't there, yeah. Yeah. Like we started talking about like, dude, how could you, could you pop the floats? Yeah. I don't, I don't you probably could pop them, but that introduces like all sorts of other things, oh, yeah. you know, like, yeah. okay, now they're flapping even more perhaps. And well, yeah. I mean like, uh, a lot of my hoist, all my hoist priests, it's like, Hey, if, you know, if it looks like we're going to have to fly out, like you can still inflate the floats. If it looks like we're coming down towards the water and maybe you fly out and now you're flying away with a single engine failure, but you were doing a hoist to some boat a hundred miles offshore. And now the floats are inflated. Just like you said, there's like, no, that's not good. That's not good. You're not, you're not making it back yeah. uh, without flaming out. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that is crazy, man. Yeah. It, it was, uh, learned a lot. And, um, actually looking at the messages, Chris, our tech did a great job of pulling a lot of historical stuff. And I think the message is out on the board now, but, um, similar feedback from a bunch of them. Like you're, you're going to have a noise, a spell, uh, a thud, perhaps some control feedback and, and definitely your airspeed is going to be limited. Yeah. That's wild. Kenny, you mentioned that like you pop the floats. How would you actually pop the floats if you had to, to get back to shore? Yeah. When shakes uh, brought this up, I thought about it a little bit. I think you get the front ones pretty easy, right? <laughs> okay, I don't know. You can <laughs> oh, easy. Well, easy, yeah, the front sure. ones, right? Easy. The, the back okay. ones on the starboard side. I think you could get that one pretty good. Starboard side. I think it's the right side of the helicopter. Starboard side. Yeah. We got Cutterman listening. We're nautical. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, our maritime service. Captain, Hulls, bomb, Captain yeah. Holzer is going to paint the uh, Mishap Analysis Center as a cutter. Oh, nice. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Are we on the O2 deck right now at Mobile? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you changed that yet. deck, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, so I think the the one on the right or starboard side of the aircraft, um, you could get. How would you get that back left one though? I think you gotta <laughs> you gotta free fall the swimmer. Free fall. Get as low as this. you can. They're on the radio letting you know because I think you'd be, you wouldn't want to obviously get the tail rotor in the water. Yes. Yeah. The swimmer is on the radio when you're hey five feet, feet four feet, him. three feet hold. Don't come any lower. Nope. And then he and gets then up there with a knife. Yeah, comes from like he dives under the dives under under comes the helicopter up. comes up, knife. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. That's probably the only way to do it, and safe. But honestly, if, if <laughs> yeah. honestly, if you were 60 miles offshore, are you going to just know. ditch the aircraft, or are you going to attempt to fly it at 90 knots, or are you going to try to maybe if you just, I mean it. Okay, I will humor this briefly. Thank you <laughs> for the branch chief over here future branch chief momentarily but uh maybe you pop two maybe the front two is enough and then yeah. you can just yes then you don't have to put the swimmer in the water and have him swim <laughs> under the helicopter or whatever you just propose yeah i have half zoned out if you have to <laughs> pop i think you have to pop um Do the, the same ones. one on each side so oh, that yeah. you're obviously aerodynamics aren't jacked up yeah yeah Man. i agree with you yeah do the front two those are easy uh less risk and then see if you can make it from there. If not, then you got to take extreme measures. Would you have changed anything that you did uh, with your response when you guys blew the floats? Uh, I don't think so. I was definitely, I, mean, we, I think it happens to all of us. Like your first solo flight or when you have EPs or something, you get like hypersensitive. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely had a lot of stuff going through my mind just as the aircraft was flying so poorly. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is a control problem. Like I know the, um, you know, the hoist, or sorry, the emergency blowdown bottles and like the port aft chine thank you um yeah, mm -hmm, no problem mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh so i was thinking like oh there's also some flight controls in the chines like maybe there's some extra stuff or it didn't make sense to me the amount of feedback we were getting so got a little neurotic about that maybe but um yeah i don't know that i do anything different necessarily like i said um i'm one that is i'm pretty quick to call atc if i need to mm -hmm. um but it, it wasn't appropriate in this particular scenario i think it was important um just to know the aor like we talk about you, or we talk about like, if you're going to go invert IMC, like what a safe heading is or something. And we had a good idea of like, Hey, what's the closest rescue asset? Like who would be on scene if we, if this did get worse, we had to ditch or something. So mm -hmm. I think that was a, a neat lesson learned, but wouldn't necessarily do anything different there. Did any discussions happen, either peers or command of, Hey, you had Catalina a lot closer. Why did you not go back towards Catalina? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, cause it, I think that's was, a legitimate question. Yeah, it's definitely closer. I mean, uh, the engineers will probably appreciate that there's at least uh, some consideration to recovery of the aircraft afterwards mm -hmm. and uh, being at like Isthmus dive chamber um, versus uh, Zuma Malibu is a significantly different logistical effort. But uh, I think by the time we, we, we thought we were going to make it home, like no problem. Mm -hmm. So it just like took a couple miles to make a determination like, okay, I don't necessarily want to go to Magoo, the sun setting. So at that point we were probably like right in the middle, but yeah, there, there definitely are some like outside of the box things. What? I, strength of an idea. Like I was ready to go back to Magoo yeah. and then like, okay, this is 15 miles closer. I mean, what's your landing criteria for floats inflated? Yeah, I don't know. Right. I think it's like your best judgment, which for you is like, man, this doesn't feel good. 50, yeah. 60 knots tops. We're getting buffeted all over the place. Yeah. Like I don't want to fly Probably like this. a known or suspected aircraft damage. Yeah, that's what I, was, yeah. I was trying to think the same thing. Yeah. Maybe moderate vibes. Yeah, slight, moderate, don't definitely. But I mean, that's slight, a, if that if we're talking about like, hey, I didn't feel safer flying more than forty five knots for a second. You're like, there must be something going else beyond just the floats inflating. Right. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, that it's probably a legitimate question that needs to get answered. And it yeah. sounds like you, you know, you you work through it. So it, it is interesting. Like we talk about it here at Mobile a lot. Like the and we get to see kind of the strength of an idea play out. So. I was trying to be like a little bit aware of that like as soon as I verbalize like, hey, I, I really don't like the flight control feedback and I'm like a little nervous about how the aircraft is flying. I also know that like I planted that seed in the crew and so that changes how uh, they're thinking and interacting too, you know. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in the, especially in the same where we get to do so many emergency procedures, um, as soon as someone in the cockpit uh, says what they think the EP is, like we're going to definitely mm -hmm. uh, follow that down the rabbit hole a little bit. So just, I was trying to be a little bit aware of like what I verbalize. Like, I don't want to keep anything to myself, but I also don't want to say something 
uh, too early when I'm not certain like that's what's happening or something. Yeah, I find it, it has taken me a long, I don't think I'm even out of this, but it's taken me a long time to not just wrote, memorize EPs and spit it out. Where We like, have a this. We have a this and then we go through these steps and then we are complete. Like instead of like taking a deep breath and being like, all right, how does the helicopter feel right now? Are the rotors still spinning? Like we're at a good altitude and airspeed. What's going on? Like maybe we should just go land. Like most of our stuff can be taken care of like that. But when you auto like lock into an EP, just like you said, strength and idea, like at least for me, I, I still, I still struggle with that. Yeah. You know, that's like the, the barber's hydraulic mishap was kind of like that. Like, Hey, there's hydraulic fluid coming out of the right side on the top of the aircraft near the hoist. Okay. This is definitely a secondary hydraulic thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, if you're not familiar, they, they went to cut off and then they gave themselves a, a total loss, like the tail rotor, because mm-hmm. it was the primary number two side that actually had the leak. Mm-hmm. And then the cutoff killed all the hydraulics of the tail. So um, it's just interesting, like just getting to the point where you make a decision or say something like that, you can you can kind of derail everybody. Yeah, that's wild. But the flip side is that it, if the BIC, like if you are concerned, like you owe it to everyone to be like, yeah, guys, I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on and I don't like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We kept the gear up until we were, um, just like a mile and a half, two miles from Malibu. Same thing. It was like, okay, the aircraft's flying. It's probably fine, but that's also some more stuff that's in the same geographical area on the on the aircraft, on the port and starboard side, but <laughs> near the float bottle and the controls and everything. So, hey, it's good now. Like we will get the gear, I promise, but um, yeah, we're going to hold it till we get a little closer. Well, you're in a, uh, you're an elite club, Nate. Yeah. You've joined an elite <laughs> membership. Does this mean the float? cover of Flight Street Fly- Fridays changes to our, our photos? We're going to go back and forth between just your face and then the float <laughs> picture, depending Perfect. on what episode we release. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, dude. You got any other questions, Kenny? No, but seriously, we do want that picture so that we can. Oh, yeah. we got. I got yeah. lots yeah. of good pictures. Good. And then, uh, yeah, so you guys made fun of the uh, the co-pilot, right? Um, yeah. Well, in, well, in, a healthy, healthy, in a healthy way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he got some, uh, helped out the... Uh, fed and made sure everyone was hydrated who helped with the recovery effort. And, um, it, it is cool too. I, I think this is somewhat unique to the coast guard, but, um, the, the, our engineering community is like pretty awesome. I know, especially at mobile, we like rag on the engineers a lot as like the instructors and operators and stuff, but mm-hmm. seeing the level of effort come together to, um, strip the planes, uh, or the floats off one of the planes, in the hangar at SF and immediately drive like the, whatever it is, seven hours down, like, um, Ryan McHugh and, and everyone uh, set up the whole overnight security for the plane and then we were on duty so that was a crazy thing like we landed and they were like okay get in the GV like we're side down for like an hour but you have to go stand duty with the back <laughs> no of way. but seeing the engineers like get everything down like ALC uh, overnight the parts out to um, to get our, our planes back to full strength was, it, it's pretty neat it's it's cool to be in an organization that does stuff like that yeah that's awesome Is it, are we required to have floats if we're flying over land uh, I don't that, know. There was a discussion about that. Like, oh, I wonder if we just, do we just cut the bags out and fly it home? <laughs> or there were a couple of discussions about that, yeah. but I was like, well, I'm, that's I'm not, on that's duty. Not your I'm, problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of divorced from that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's crazy. Well, Shakes, thanks for joining us, man. We miss you here. Yeah. It's good to have you back. Excited to be back here. Awesome. We'll see you. All right, Kenny, should we get back to the HAI episode? Yeah, absolutely. Let's All do right, it. let's get into it. Yeah. And so for those who are, you know, like you started this out with, you know, just getting your logbook squared away and all that stuff. So if you go onto uh, rotor.org and you go to the military to civilian, uh, they, they talk about setting up your aviation resume, talk about logging flight time. I mean, did you know that if you are taxiing, like for those pilots that are air station Savannah, you know, you, you taxi for like an hour before you can get <laughs> off the uh, mm-hmm. runway, right? So mm-hmm. that, that time is loggable if you are taxiing from the intent for flight and after you land, you know, the repositioning after you land. So, you know, your logbook would look significantly different if you had to log all those hours. Yeah, I feel like we need to, we, we have to come up with a swag number that, that makes sense because you're kind of also bound. Well, yeah. you're balancing like, hey, do I start at the collective pole? Which is basically, yeah, as soon as you taxi, but, you know, there's, especially in the 65 where we've been flying this aircraft since the eighties. Right. And it yeah. is, it's starting to have part shortages and, you know, like any other aircraft that's getting long in the tooth. Um, and the flight hours matter for maintenance and right. what you track specifically for your flight time, um, matters, right? Yeah. Like, you're going to get that aircraft into unnecessary maintenance if you're logging frivolous flight yeah. time, but for the civilian logbook, 
it's not frivolous. It's not frivolous. Yeah. yeah. And I, I actually didn't know that until, uh, today, you know, I, I'd never didn't yeah. know that, that that was required. So, yeah. So take a look at that. You'll get lots of good information there well before you need to, you know, start actually looking for a job, make sure you're ready for that transition. And it's like when I, when I was ready to retire, I, I looked at a flying job, but I looked at other jobs and, you know, I ended up not going the flying route, but make sure you always, even if you think you're done with flying, just keep that in the hip pocket as one of your options as you're making that transition, because yeah. you, you may regret it. You know, you want to be able to have a job offer and say no, because you got a better job offer outside of the cockpit. I think for you guys, the way I hear you talk, it's always a flying job that'll win out, you know? So I yeah. think most, most of you guys will feel that way. And I don't know if we talked about it uh, earlier, but um, part of that Heli Expo uh, before I think the official dates start, there is a military to civilian course, right? Like a whole day where you learn about all this stuff. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. It's concurrent with the expo itself. Is it? So, okay. yeah. So that way you're not being cheated. You know, you don't get to have to just stay in a ballroom and do interviews. You know, you, you go in there for interview for a couple hours and then you're like, Hey, I want to go check out the S 92 and see mm -hmm. what's up yeah. with that. Cause I want to transition to that thing, you know, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, so I was speaking of aircraft and longer the tooth. So 65, is it time to, are we playing wah wah? The, the time has come. Uh, I would say the writing is on the walls, but um, it's supposed to go to 2035. Uh, but the Coast Guard is going, at, at some point uh, in the near future, will be, it sounds like a fully 60 platform. Yeah, and they've got a good plan in place too. So, you know, we're slowly transitioning air stations to 60s, right? And that obviously brings 65s off the line. We've got more parts that we could pull. You know, we get more hangar queens at that point that you can actually pull parts from and, and fix the remaining ones. And, and kind of the two special missions that the, the 65 does that the 60 doesn't do is AI, uh, airborne intercept here in the DC area, um, you know, making sure that people stay out of the TFRs as necessary. And then the other one is what you two did with Hitron. So I think by 20, you know, 30 or who, who knows, I don't have a crystal ball, but like at that point, that's what's going to be where our 65s are at. And we might only have, yeah. I don't know, 20 helicopters out of the 99 that we have currently. So, so 99 for 20, that's yeah. a lot of yeah. spare parts. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you said aerial intercept. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, intercepting other aircraft. I mean, I, I know what it is, but how about those people who are listening, watching, who don't understand that mission? You want to go through that? Sure. Yeah. So um, basically the, the Coast Guard is able to um, identify an aircraft that is not where it's supposed to be, we'll say, um, and they have the ability to intercept an air. It's basically a quick way to get in forms with someone and then able to communicate either via radio or signboard with them to let them know like, hey, you're not where you're supposed to be and you mm -hmm. need to you need to listen to. Yeah. So a little directions. bug smasher penetrates the, uh, the restricted area and particularly the in what, 30 mile ring around DC, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. If you, if you don't come in invited, you're going to get a visit, but an F-16 might be a little fast. Yeah. So that, you that's know? the thing we're yeah. preventing is that, Hey, uh, Coast Guard helicopter, get your signboard out, um, get these people escorted. Cause mostly it's just people who are like, yeah, I don't know where I am. Or Grandpa, you know, I, I made his grandson. Yeah, I got lost. I, I made the wrong call, something like that. Um, and it's way more friendly to have us there instead of like an F-15 or 16 that it's got tone and, you know, <laughs> is about to blast you out of the sky. Cause yeah. it, you know, cause if, if what we do doesn't work, the air force uh, is ready to, you know, or is already airborne. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've never done the mission, but um, that's essentially it. And so the coast guard has um, their air station in Atlantic city, which became, uh, you know, after they brought Brooklyn and was a Cape May together. Yep. Um, so they field that uh, specific mission with a couple other um, satellite units. That, um, was it Detroit, Savannah? It used to be New Orleans. So that's limited now the number of units that get qualified mm -hmm. aerial intercept. Yep. Correct. Yeah. And so they do that. And then they also follow the president um, around as well. National so, security, special national events, security. as they still call it mm -hmm. that. Yep, yep, exactly. So yeah, it's a really interesting mission. You get to fly the 65 at its flight envelope or slightly beyond, uh, for sure. Just like you guys did at, at uh, Hitron. So a lot of yanking and banking. Form flying is really fun. Yeah, the course reversal maneuver is kind of sporty, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah are, they actually split the controls. So like one person will be doing the collective, the other person will be doing the, the cyclic. So they can manage power while the mm -hmm. other person gets uh, turned. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and focused on that target to make sure that you they don't, don't take their eyes off target. target. Yeah. And yeah. do they fly with a heads up display or no, no, no heads up display. Um, okay. but yeah, yeah, exactly. When you, you know, pull the cyclic back cause they do an initial climb and then, uh, as they're coming in from an, from another target and then 
come up and over and back down to them, right? So as you make that turn to the left or the right, you get a lot of that transient torque, and then that's why that person is managing that collective. Yeah. Uh, a little less noisy there. than an F-22 or a yeah, 35 a or 16 as yeah. well. So the neighborhood's yeah. probably happier. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's one of the things we were constantly, uh, you know, responding to are noise complaints, you know, so that's something the Coast Guard, you know, when somebody sees a Coast Guard helicopter fly over, they're typically not upset, you know, mm -hmm. some of them are. My mom lives in the traffic pattern of Ellington. <laughs> oh, Houston, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, you know, but she, she, she always, I think she still thinks it's me flying over, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, like, uh, you know, depending on the part of country where you're at is, yeah. yeah. In San Fran, we got noise complaints. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Even, even Absolutely. as ghosties. Um, Hawaii is you can a, tell a, by the way people wave at, on the beach as you're flying. <laughs> yeah. You know, like people are excited to see it. Is that or, wave or stopping? You wave is there a, is there a symbol being given you? with a, a stationary wave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that. <laughs> the old one finger wave. Yeah. 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 Distinct difference there. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the Hawaii, you know, there, there are folks who legitimately, you know, they, hey, I'm in, I'm in paradise. I don't want noise pollution. But there's the flip side of that. There's folks who've never been able to see a volcano and they never will be able to because they're impaired or whatever. They just don't have the ability to go on that long hike or whatever. So mm -hmm. that's, that's as good as it gets for them to go see the Grand Canyon or the national parks. And so there's, there's a lot of competition for airspace and there's actually a queue and number of allotments that some of these folks get in there to control the, you know, continuous flow of aircraft. And some folks take issue with, the, the noise and mm -hmm. they try to put it in the category of safety when it's, it's not safety. It's just, you know, just noise. Yeah. Just noise. And some folks don't appreciate that sound. Uh, others, you know, grow up with it and they love it. You know? mm -hmm. So trying to be mindful of that, working with the communities, have advocacy, helping create routes where people are aware of, you know, hey, this is a, this is a friendly route. You know, we have a fly neighborly working group that mm -hmm. talks yeah. about, you know, understanding the noise signature of aircraft and the and certain conditions, uh, power settings, descent rates, speeds, and, and what's, what's, what's the most friendly one to operate in. So I know that when I was in the Coast Guard, we did a little bit of the noise surveys yeah. with some of those folks. I've got uh, a good, good Go story from yeah. LA. Um, I guess they had a reservist that would kind of stand the ODO, which was like the desk. So anyone that wanted to call into the air station had to go through the, the ODO and LA would get a lot of noise complaints, right? There's, there were a lot of people that didn't, you know, they're on their beach condo. They didn't want to see a helicopter coming over or a 737, whatever it was. Um, well, this uh, reservist started standing duty for them. And the ops boss one day, the chief pilot was like, that's weird. Like, we're not getting any, uh, you know, noise complaints anymore. And the <laughs> reservist was like, oh, yeah, I just I just hang up on them when they call. <laughs> and they're like, how uh -oh. long have you been doing that? And I was like, ever since I started here. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, that's why we're not getting noise yeah, complaints anymore. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Chris, do you have a um, favorite SAR case when you were in the Coast Guard? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess, it, you know, there's always a basket, a few that come to mind, a memory. I guess one that sticks out is when I was in Hawaii, we uh, got launched on a SAR case on Christmas morning. And it was Richard Branson attempting to fly around the, uh, you know, around the globe in a, in a balloon. And uh, they just... They couldn't quite make the journey. The winds were not friendly. They were not accommodating. And they, they decided to descend and have a controlled, a controlled ditching north of Oahu. And so no we were involved way. in that case. Yeah, so- uh, Did you pick them up? Yeah, I, I didn't pick Richard Branson up. There, there was actually another aircraft ready, off-going crew. And, you know, there was, there was a bunch of shuffling. You know, it was like a transition time. So I came in in the morning and uh, assisted in the second crew that picked up. But uh, yeah, so Richard Branson and another guy who was with him, I believe, were picked up first by our ops boss. Of mm -hmm. course, the ops boss poached the case. You know, that's what they do. No way. And then uh, the, the last guy who, who was the, the pilot, and I apologize for getting his name, he, uh, as he jumped out, you know, we were waiting and there was really strong surface winds. And so I guess they couldn't, the explosive bolts on the capsule wouldn't release. And so the, the balloon was dragging them and they're skipping across the waves. It was really pretty sporty, kind of scary. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're backing down with a good headwind, just kind of following along. So I told the flight mech in the back as we're just sitting there waiting. It's like, why don't you pull out the LE camera, law enforcement camera, and get a couple shots, you know, while we're here. And so as the guy, you know, we coordinated, he said when he was jumping, and as he jumped out, you know, we got a still frame of him <laughs> jumping out 
into the surf with the capsule and the balloon tagging behind. And it made the uh, the back page of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue of that year. <laughs> Did it really? Year. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so he he got published in a pretty cool magazine. Holy cow! <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of a fun story. Yeah, yeah that's everybody a really everybody fun ended story. up fine. You know, by the time we came back to the air station, Richard Branson had some private helicopter come and pick him up and sw- swept him away. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't get to say hi or you know get him to sign something. Or <laughs> but, yeah, good. St- Fun story. Yeah, that makes me think there's another Coast Guard story out there where uh, it might have been Humboldt uh, up in Northern California or in North Bend, Oregon. Maybe it was North Bend. Uh, Harrison Ford landed there ah. and had gone in to ask like, hey, what's the weather like around here? And whoever was talking to him had no idea who he was. And then like eventually somebody realized like, holy cow, Harrison Ford's at the air <laughs> station right now. Yeah. This is awesome. Uh, did you have any cases where you were um, kind of pushed to your limits or do you have any ones where, you know, risk, because uh, I, I think we should dive into a little bit about uh, decision making yeah, and, absolutely. and risk uh, decision. Yeah. So uh, Bodega Bay, you know, yeah, you're familiar there. with that, you oh, know, yeah. in the marine layer and you can get a little foggy there, a little bit foggy in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. So it's going with uh, anytime you fly with somebody who's been to uh, the Royal Air Force, Royal Navy tour, when they come back, they, they're invulnerable, they're invincible, they can fly <laughs> in any weather. Mm-hmm. So our, our uh, XO at the time, Pete Trosen, really good dude. I don't know if you know him, but he, mm-hmm. he, I think he's a city manager up in Oregon somewhere. I forget the name of the town. So really great guy. Uh, so he's flying with me and I'm flying and, and we're, we have a report of somebody lost in the surf. So we come up from the air station, not too far to go for Bodega Bay. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're crawling along in some pretty skosh weather. And, uh, it got to the point where I'm like, I just say, hey, XO, you know, I'm, I'm beyond my abilities to feel comfortable here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of one of those confess, you know, and uh, we still had enough visual acuity to cruise along the coast. But, you know, the classic story of the commercial pilot thinking they, they have a clearance and somebody strung a set of wires, you know, recently or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about that, that we may not see an obstacle or whatever. So we didn't continue much longer after that, but uh, yeah. I gave them the controls. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to say no to, to yeah. things too. That actually reminds me of doing, uh, not for a case, but uh, with Pon Pon John of all people, <laughs> we were going up to do some hoist training up in Bodega Bay and uh, the weather was crap uh, and the radar picture was crappy. Uh, like it was a bunch of rain and everything. And I was... I was a green co-pilot. Like I was fairly new to the unit, maybe within a year. Um, we headed up, couldn't really see the coast that well as we're trying to pick our way and we're trying to get around Point Reyes. So we're going the land, the water route all the way up there. And I looked at John, I'm like, I just, this doesn't feel right. Like, I don't, I think we should cancel. And uh, kudos to him and any other pilot that does this. Like he is very experienced at that point, right? He's at his third tour. He's an instructor pilot easily could handle the weather we were in, right? And and probably knew that it was good training value out of it too, but had a crew member speak up and say, hey, this doesn't feel right. Um, and it was just like, yeah, no questions asked. Okay, yep, we'll we'll cancel for tonight. That's fine. We'll head back to the air station. So yeah, those risk conversations are good about folks in the back too. Yeah. So in the commercial world, you know, you may, it's almost always single pilot. So you don't have another set of eyes, you know, that conscience, you know, somebody on that other shoulder keeping you in check, but you got somebody in the back lots of times, you know? Mm-hmm. And so hit Ron, I remember, you know, we're always aware for training, you know, you know, you don't need to push the envelope that much. You got your training limits. They're a little more conservative. So we're at heading out to the river and there's a gunner in the back, you know, there's not a flight mate, but a gunner, I think it was Eric Shuba, I think was his name right yeah. And uh, I'm sitting there and eh, it's getting a little, the weather's coming down a little bit, but it's still within limits, but it, you know, it could get worse. And I, I give this long spiel, you know, Hey, the weather, you know, the forecast and this is this, I estimate the visibility is this. And I'd go through this mm-hmm. long spiel expecting him to go, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and turn around. He's like, he's, he's just two words, not scared. You know, so that's kind really, of, so almost like I wanted validation to turn around. So now, now I'm like, okay, I can't be the, I can't be the wimp, you know, so I continue on. <laughs> Fortunately, it didn't get worse, but it, it probably inhibited my ability to make a smart decision when he gave me that affirmation that he wasn't scared. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's a lot of that going on where everybody wants to be the tough one, you know, not continue. But is that is that the right risk management? Looking back at it, back at it in retrospect, I probably would have made it different had it it'd been a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we might have talked about this in our, our last um, podcast that we did, but... Um, there are oftentimes in the aircraft where, um, you know, you're pushing, whether you're trying to get a mission done, whether you're, you're making a 
patient transfer to a hospital or you just landed on scene and you're going somewhere or you're trying to get this SAR case, like you want to at least get there and see if there's someone actually drowning. Um, and everyone is like, this weather is awful. I'm uncomfortable. But no one is willing to say anything yet. Um, there was actually a, a Hitron story that comes to mind. Um, we, we take off from the ship. It's, you know, right at limits, uh, limits meaning our, our pitch and roll limits that we can legally take off and land. Um, it's two in the morning. So we've been flying between two and two and five in the morning, right? When they say, Hey, that's the most dangerous time for you to be flying. Mm -hmm. Um, so we got the interdiction, we got the, um, the boarding team was on board. So basically the, the mission is over and they asked us to go look for bales oh. to do recovery. And, um, I'm in the right seat and I came into a hundred foot hover and we're just staring at these, you know, white packages that are two feet by two feet or so. And my hover is minus 50 feet plus 150 feet. And so we're just sitting there, you know, so. watching these things go up and down. Very little, you know, visual horizon. And all it took was someone to be like, hey, what are we doing? Perfect. And it was like yeah. transitioning forward. Hey, Cutter, we need a green yep. deck. We're coming back to land. And it was like, all, you know, obviously I, I was working so hard to just not crash at that moment mm -hmm. that I wasn't thinking about anything else. Um, and it was the, the person in the back that was yeah. like, hey, what the heck are we doing right now? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It reminds me of the early CRM days when you know, I was there when we started rolling it out in the Coast Guard and one of the communication terms, and I don't know if you still use it in your training, inquiry invites advocacy. Mm, no. It's a kind of a that. cool term. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it snaps people out of it. It's a, yep. it's a non-threatening, non-judgmental way to dive in or, you know, ease into that questioning, you know, mm -hmm. question everything, Super yeah. easy do, it, to do. do it with tact. Yeah. yeah. We didn't yeah. even, like, like I said, we didn't even talk about what was coming up next. We all knew the right answer. It just second that question was asked. It was like, yep. And we're going we're home. out of here. Yeah. yeah. So you, you speak a little bit about it. Find out if somebody's drowning, you know, I mean, converting that to the commercial world, there is a, there's an obsessive desire, I think, on most part of most responsible operators is to eliminate the gain side of the formula that the Coast Guard typically thinks about when they think about risk management. You have risk versus gain. You know, one of our, you know, heroes in our, in our community, Admiral Courier, wrote that famous article, uh, Warranted Risk. It was in a Naval Proceedings article, and it's still quoted to this day, and it's been converted mm -hmm. to operational policy within the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. You know, so... You can speak a little bit about how you think about that, and then then I'll talk maybe a little bit how that translates to the commercial side. Yeah, so um, our governing doctrine uh, basically gives you know there, there's an outline of rules, uh, but when it, we start talking about warranted risk, um, it allows us to deviate for two reasons, and we can break all the rules if we can save if we have a possibility of saving a human life, or we think it's for aircraft safety. Mm -hmm. um, so when we find ourselves in these um, you know search and rescue cases. Um, or we normally have training men's. Um, when you start talking about operational missions for SAR, um, we have a quarter mile for takeoff. Doesn't matter what the ceiling is. Doesn't matter what in between is or where we're going. As long as we have a quarter mile for uh, visibility for takeoff, off we go. Mm -hmm. um, if it's zero zero and we still think we can go, then we actually have to call the CEO of the unit, um, who will then kind of say like, "Hey, what are you going to do? How are you going to get there? How are you going to get back?" And there might be a couple extra questions, but mm -hmm. it can be waverable up, up to zero zero conditions. Um, and so I, th I think the military side, we have, we're all some sort of type A personality and like, we are going to get this mission done. It's just a matter of, of how we do it. And we're allowed to deviate as long as we think we can justify that, Hey, we are going to save a life on this mm -hmm. mission. We have a high probability of saving a life. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a, a big culture shift. And I, I, I'd imagine, you know, uh, I haven't been talking with too many of my, you know, EMS pilots, but Hey, they're, they're men's. And it doesn't matter what the gain is, right? Like you look at it strictly from a, okay, well, here's the company policy and either yeah. I meet it yeah. or I don't. And yeah. you don't think about it. Whereas, you know, we get tied in even with the emotional stuff of, um, you know, we've got a saying in the Coast Guard, like, well, if it's burning babies in the surf, like we're going to go do it no matter what. Um, yeah. And I still remember a lot of those training things where you have a picture ridiculous. of a baby in the surf, you know, <laughs> right. and then there's a fire behind them. Well, or whatever. Let me tag onto that yeah. too. Like in, in our community too, if you can save a life um, and you have an, like, it's reasonable that it'll actually happen. You can do that up to damaging the aircraft where it's unrecoverable. But 
not if you're going to sacrifice the crew. So we don't go like you, you can't do that. And if like the helicopter's going to crash, you're going to lose everybody. Obviously what's the mission worth at that point. But yeah, you can actually break the helicopter and the coast guard will say, as long as you're following that policy, like we've got your back. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing with the coast guard too, is that we have a very um, layered risk um, culture. So like Kenny alluded to like, Hey, if the weather's worse than a quarter mile, you got to get a waiver. So any kind of case you go out on the operations officer, the chief pilot gets a phone call, right? Hey, we are trying to go offshore a hundred miles at night, you know, 15 foot seas and the weather is terrible. Hey, let's talk about this together from a risk perspective. Yeah. Like, Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, are we the right asset at the moment? Yeah. Um, is that person uh, that needs a medevac, do they need to get off the boat immediately? Hey, can we wait yeah. until daylight happens? And talking you know, about the star model. Yeah, right? exactly. Spread out, transfer, avoid, accept, uh, reduce. reduce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where we are from the military perspective. At yeah. Least and the and on the com commercial side, it's, it's significantly different as you well know. I mean, you have, like say part 135 air medical operator, there's a section in the, in the manual subpart L, I think it's 609 that tells them exactly what their minimums are mm -hmm. in certain conditions. And you don't deviate, you know, and in some instances you may not even want to go up to those minimums, you know? Yeah. Uh, but you know, just to, as a standard part 91 operator, the minimum, you know, ceiling and visibility limitations, you know, the clear clouds half a mile, you know, it's like who wants to fly in that? So, so, but people can legitimately, go out and fly if they're in the right airspace with pretty sketchy weather. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we're, we're actually trying to attack that in, in our messaging, our safety promotion is like, do you really need to, or should you, what, what are you gaining from that? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. So that's the difference is the air medical guys and it, uh, you know, the offshore guys, they encounter some bad weather, but they're not looking at, well, what do we have to gain here? No, it's, I have my weather or I don't. Mm -hmm. End of story. That's got to be a hard shift for a military uh, SAR pilot to shift to that because there's that, you know, somebody needs me, right? But you got to, yeah, you got to kind of detach from somebody needs yeah. me and, and like, hey, yeah, we yeah. need to go from A to B and I need to make sure I get this aircraft safely there and back. Yeah, that mission mentality. In fact, FAA is trying to uh, get people to stop using the word mission. Mm -hmm. You know, now public safety operators, they're kind of like in the middle, kind of, they, you know, a lot of them operate, you know, under the FARs, just like, you know, the commercial side, but they have some special, you know, operating under a state authority or something like that. So they might have quite a, a slightly nuanced, different approach to how they view risk and potential gain. And, you know, who are they safe? You know, the public safety is their mantra. I can't speak to that directly. Maybe you guys can bring somebody on in the future who works for a public safety entity. You know, some mm -hmm. of those folks might be interested in recruiting some former coasties as well. Yeah. Yeah. So help, help me understand here. So there's obviously FA regs, but companies will have policies that are slightly more conservative than, than FAA regs. Is that true? Yeah. So what you'll have is, you know, when you're particularly operating under a commercial operation for higher part 135 certificate, you actually get the FAA will come in and look at your general operations manual. Think of them looking at your, your 3710 ops manual, your safety manual, and mm. then your engineering manual all combined in one. And that's the GOM. So how are you, how are you conducting business? And uh, you're demonstrating to the local examiner and the FAA overall that you have managed your risk to an acceptable level for the mission that you're doing. There I go again, using that term. Mm -hmm. And uh, you get signed off. So now if a pilot deviates from the limits that are established in their GOM, it'd be just like busting a 3710 air ops limit. Okay. Yeah. Got yeah. it. How do you, how does uh, the civilian community do risk assessments? Um, do they have forms? Does everybody do the same thing? Is it all different based on your company? Yeah. So getting to the air medical, there is a requirement to have some form of a flight risk assessment. And uh, most of folks will use a flight risk assessment tool, mm -hmm. a FRAT that you may be familiar with that term. Others will you know, roll in um, the ops center involved in that. You'll have mechanics doing maintenance versions of the assessments. So everybody, everybody chooses to manage that differently. Some of, you know, you do their deliberative or, you know, before anybody gets to work and then finally the on scene, and then you're continuing throughout, throughout the activity that you're doing is continuous assessment. So yeah, there is, there is some awareness on managing risk. 
And uh, we, uh, you know, HEI actually offers a flight risk assessment tool on our website for folks to use. We're partnered, or uh, we just started partnering with a Swiss-based company mm. that has a uh, customizable, a frat that you can go in and customize it any way you want with any different ways. That's even ergonomically designed for you know mobile devices. You know, it's pretty cool. So you 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 could take every unit in the Coast Guard has a customized frat mm-hmm. right now. They could customize that in that tool as an example. And they could go forth and conquer with a mobile version of that. And mm-hmm. it can actually work offline. So that's that's being made widely available. I think the challenge is, is people kind of, you know, check the block, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the constant challenge is just to get people to have a grown-up conversation leading up to a flight, coming on duty or whatever, the shift. And then right before you go fly. So something I, I heard some people say toward the end of my Coast Guard career, and I tried to adopt it, is I'm going to make a mistake on this flight. Mm-hmm. left unchecked, it could, it could hurt some people to break some things. So I expect, no, I demand that everybody in this crew let me know when I make that mistake. So mm-hmm. it doesn't get out of hand. That's a good, and, good point. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned that it's one of the, my favorite things that you say. Uh, Cause when we do our risk assessment before the flight, it's like, all right, we're doing this risk assessment, but this goes out, out the window as soon as we step in the aircraft, right? Uh, risk isn't something that is done once, uh, like a risk assessment that is, isn't something that's done once. It's something that's a continual process. Yeah. Uh, no matter what the flight regime is, no matter how long that flight takes, like it is something that you need to continually think about, you know, in the, I'm assuming like in the civilian sector, Hey, we're going to go land in this LZ. What are the risks, yeah. you know, in, in landing at this helipad today? What are the risks uh, for the mission that we're doing for how we're feeling in the aircraft? So I do appreciate that you say that quite often. Yeah. And then, you know, there's cases that, that prove it that, um, you know, people are, have this mindset like, okay, here's our risk, here's our gain. And, you know, especially as Coast Guard operators, the initial report that you get for a SAR case is never anywhere near the truth of what you, when you actually get there. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same for EMS folks of, you know, when you do those offsite landings, like, okay, here's what it is. Hey, no one mentioned this huge power line that's, you know, a quarter mile to the east of where we are landing, you know, okay, mm-hmm. hey, we let's take 15 seconds and stop like, Hey, will that affect us based off our departure route or entry into this LZ? What, yeah. what will be our wave off if we have it? What do we do if we have an emergency? And, and so, um, I, I love to encourage, uh, what I call, I'd say all the time, like floating the CRM balloon of like, Hey, did you guys see that huge set of power lines over there? Yeah. Nope. I didn't. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second or like, Oh yeah, that was talked about. It was briefed. Hey, I think you were talking on a different radio. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. You know, yeah we did talk about it. We mm-hmm. see it. Something I saw, you know, I, I had the, I had the, you know, opportunity to see lots of units when I was in the Coast Guard, you know, going around checking them out and is <laughs> almost always poaching good ideas and things that they do well over, you know, things that they need to improve on or running. And, and I'd say, hey, let me hook you up with so-and-so at this other unit and tell you how they deal with that issue. You know, it's a free-flowing conversation, but the more evolved organizations not only do risk assessment before, during, and but then after the flight, you know, mm-hmm. what did we encounter here that we didn't expect? What was our biggest threat that we anticipated? What did we actually encounter? And what can we do to make sure the next folks don't encounter a situation like that unexpectedly and potentially didn't avoid it like mm-hmm. we did? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that uh, we do in the Coast Guard, obviously we brief ahead of time, we talk about risk. Um, we try to identify gain and compare those two things to make sure that um, it's, a, it's a quick sanity check. And then uh, once we get back, we also um, are required to do a post-flight debrief. And we do that with our whole crew to just talk about, um, hey, did we did we accomplish our mission? Um, if not, like what, what was it that prevented us from doing that? Hey, does anyone have feedback for the whole air crew? How was our CRM? Did, at any point, did someone not know what was going on? Um, hey, that that risk management piece that we did ahead of time, did we stay true to that or, or not? Um, do you think anyone, do we, do we take any unnecessary risk is typically the term yeah. that we use. Hey, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we took on a lot of risk and there was not a whole lot of gain for that one little thing that we did. Um, yeah. And at the end of the flight, lots of times people are tired. They just want to get the heck out of there. And so the PIC, it's kind of important for them to kind of lead that and go, Hey, here's where I think I, did something I shouldn't have done. Looking back, I should mm-hmm. have fixed this. And so you kind of open up that dialogue by being first to show where you're vulnerable and where you can improve. Yeah. yeah. And to just even go full circle with, you know, SMS and saying, okay, like from an organization, did we handle that level, uh, risk level appropriately? Meaning, 
hey, maybe we shouldn't have even launched for that because we did launch a crew. We thought we were good. Um, turns out they landed in some field and had a significant emotional event, um, and we didn't deliver that, that patient to where we thought we, we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's also important, and you know, that's we ask our chief pilots to basically kind of handle that risk management at, a, at an upper level in the organization. And it's a yeah. good thing that pilots don't have any pride where that happens yeah, no that. problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah always a factor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the biggest risk that you see the civilian aviation industry, uh, as, as in terms of just flying, um, not specifically like maintenance or anything, but... I think, you know, I mean, you know, what we keep hitting on, I mean, the top three killers for the commercial industry, fatal accidents or loss of control in flight, mm-hmm. um, low altitude operations, striking an object while you're at low altitude mm-hmm. and uh, uh, unintended flight into IMC. Mm-hmm. You know, so those, uh, those are the common, common killers for the pilots. And so, and almost all of them can, can flow back into, dub, you know, double IMC, you know, because if you, if you have, if you get spatial disorientation, it's probably because, you flew into low visibility, whether it's during the day, night, or just, you know, just bad contrast. Yeah. And then if you don't have a stabilization systems, flight directors, like you guys are fortunate to have, then chances are you're going to have a really hard time maintaining the control of the aircraft. And if you're low, there's a good chance you're going to smack into something. And so, if you're single piloted yeah. too, like it's just you yeah. up front. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah, you guys so, train for that? Well, that's something we're really trying hard to uh, emphasize. You know, you know, HAI partnered with the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team to create a, a program called the 56 Seconds to Live program. If you mm-hmm. haven't heard of it, I yeah. encourage you to just go to Google or YouTube and type in yeah. 56 Seconds to Live. Yeah. Check it out. We actually hired an actor to portray a pilot going on a flight. And uh, we went to, into Airbus and uh, in Grand Prairie, Texas, and then went to Frasca there in Illinois. And we, we had some recordings of the scenario flying in an Airbus H125 mm-hmm. and giving them, you know, ha- watching how somebody, you know, flies in bad weather all the time. They're used to it and they kind of become complacent. And then all of a sudden until it's not cool anymore and they got, they got themselves out of control. And so we depict that crash scenario mm-hmm. just to, it's, some of you may have heard of the 178 seconds to live. It's a civilian pilot who gets into bad weather and it shows the emotion on them. So we wanted to create the rotorcraft version of that. So we partnered with a bunch of folks to put together this program just to kind of wake people up and snap them out of it and say, this is a real deal. Mm-hmm. Can't do this kind of scare them straight. But then beyond just the, the scare, then we offer some tools, resources, uh, training. Uh, there's a learning management system course that folks can sign up for, for free on our website, on our HAI Academy, and they can go through that course and they just get a little education on things you need to think about in your pre-flight planning while you're flying to make sure you can first and foremost avoid flying in that kind of weather. Cause most mm-hmm. of these folks we're trying to reach don't have the systems or the skills or the qualifications, certifications, type aircraft certs or anything to, to manage it correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, some folks out there didn't even like the idea of having a segment in there of transitioning into the instruments because for some aircraft out there it's viewed as unsurvivable. It's an emergency. Completely unsurvivable yeah. if you don't have the right training and uh, equipment. So, you know, we, we preach, you know, doing a, like what you would call a ready room down, just quitting, you know, just canceling the flight before you even walk outside because you know, you have enough information, don't push it. And then all the way up to the point where you take off, you know, continuing to make that decision. I can cancel. Once you take off, you can turn around and go back. As soon as you realize what the heck am I doing? Like you said in your story. Mm -hmm. And then, and then finally, because you're in a helicopter, you have this superpower, you can land Mm -hmm. (laughs) unless you're flying over, you know, super steep terrain or, you know, Mm -hmm. a forest you can land in pretty much any anywhere that can fit your helicopter. Or so, heck, at least come into a hover and say, okay, I have great references here. Yeah. Um, let me wait 10 minutes for this, <coughs> you know, rain to come through. Yeah. Then mm-hmm. Burn a little fuel down. and wait for things yeah. to get better. You know, there's, there's options as a helicopter pilot that we, we, we are fortunate to have. And a lot of people don't exploit those capabilities. And then finally, you know, and, and finally transition. If you're in the situation where you're not punched in yet, but you have enough visual acuity to actually make a controlled entry into the IFR environment, mm-hmm. then, then great, do that. Yeah. You know, be and, prepared. And, yeah. <clears throat> yeah I'm, it's interesting too. It's kind of hard to get detached from that mentality. Like I need to get the aircraft back to point A. Like I need for, especially I would assume in a civilian where time is money, you need to get it back to where it needs to be for the next flight. Um, and being able to detach yourself from that mentality and be like, no, what's more important is keeping the aircraft safe. Like it is okay to land here we can drive a fuel truck out here if I run out of gas and I land here or, you know, maintenance can figure out how to get out here and put the aircraft yep. on a trailer and yeah, you might have to do the, the ride of shame. Yeah. It's better than the alternative. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, as just listening to you talk, the, the Coast Guard is facing the exact exact same problems. Um, and like you alluded to, like we have an aircraft that is for fully certified. We have pilots that are fully IFR certified. We have a second pilot in the aircraft, but as a helicopter pilot, we're so we want visuals. We want our eyeballs to see things to orient ourselves. And there is hesitation when you get to that point where you're like, I cannot maintain visual reference. I cannot keep the spinning side up right now. I should commit to going into the clouds. And I wonder if um, part of that is just not having confidence in the clouds. So, hey, if, if you're not an IFR certified pilot, like, yeah, but doesn't mean you can't practice some basic BI skills in, in VMC, VFR mm -hmm. conditions. And, you know, for the guys that are IFR certified, like, don't be afraid to go and do an IFR trainer and see what it feels like go to in be the in clouds. the clouds. Mm -hmm. um, I encourage people um, a lot to not only go into the clouds, but don't use your flight director. Yeah, um, I think that's huge. And, you know, a lot of people kind of give me the, the, the side eye on that. And I'm like, there is no better time to practice flying in the clouds when you know your flight director is working, your AFCS is working, so that if you are having trouble maintaining you know, the altitude and airspeed that you're required to be on, you can say, okay, buttons. today is not my day. I'll take heading select and altitude hold. And hopefully you can do a little in internal reflection and say, holy crap, if I had found myself in the clouds today, I could not have safely gotten myself out of the clouds. And, mm -hmm. and hopefully that um, pushes you to just become, yeah. a, become a better pilot. So there, you know, I talked with Bruce Webb. He's the director of education and community outreach at Airbus down in Grand Prix. I, I recommend you get him on your podcast. I yeah. think he's going to be We'd spooling up one soon. Yeah. But he he has lots of great stories to tell about folks that who have a a perfectly coupled aircraft and they punch in and what they do the opposite. They're like, hmm. I'm the hero. Punch off the flight director. Oh, and they're going to manually try to re-enter re, re VMC and, you know. and yeah. uh, Autopilot is always going <laughs> to fly better than us. No matter how good of a pilot you are, autopilot's going to fly better yeah. than you. Yeah. But you know, like the folks at Airbus, Bell, a few other folks, even Leonardo, I think they're all looking at spooling up some of these, uh, you know, programs. So I, I went and I went and checked out the double IMC simulator course at Airbus just to check that out. And it's humbling. They got an old EC-135 simulator. They take off the force trim and they make you fly, you know, AFCS off or whatever. And, uh, He's got the old gyro there and it's, they, you try to do anything, tune a radio, just put in 7,700, anything that you do to turn your head, your, your cross check is going to suffer very quickly, mm -hmm. no matter how good you think you are, unless you've got some proficiency doing it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's very humbling. I recommend people who, uh, have the opportunity to get that training and go out there and get some of that simulator training, use flight simulator on a desktop, you know, just get comfortable with more of the basic instrument skills like you were referring to. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a, make you bulletproof, but it, it certainly can improve your initial uh, hesitancy to uh, commit and confess and climb and get yourself out of that condition. Yeah. You know? Ken, Kenny and I had a case where I feel like I've learned more and more as I've gotten older and more experienced in aviation. Cause when it happened, I was, I might've been flying for a year or two, but Kenny and I uh, flew out of Point Magoo up to Monterey Bay, and there was a, an active case for um, a boat bringing drugs up the up the coast from somewhere. And so we took over uh, from another aircraft that came down from San Francisco. We transferred, we found the boat, and we were vectoring in a small boat um, from the local Coast Guard station there. Uh, and the weather got got bad. Um, we had eyes on them. There was an 87 foot uh, patrol boat that came in there and um, we got all the way up close to them. We spotlighted them. And within two, three minutes, a uh, big squall line came through. But before that squall line even came through, Kenny and I had a conversation about it and like, hey, we are probably going to punch into this this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, level the wings. We're going to start climbing away from the water. We're going to turn to a 270 heading because that's away from land on the West Coast. And we're going to um, come up to a certain altitude and, and fly away. Like we're not a good asset at that point. But I think like looking back at that, the fact that we had a conversation before going into that weather. And if you have weather that you're flying around, like having the idea of what you're going to do if it does happen, like obviously avoid it if you can, if you're a VFR helicopter, but having that conversation or that thought process in your head before you even go in yeah. is helpful. Yeah. I, I think it's a good one to kind of wrap up this conversation here. Just one other anecdote. I remember, I remember lots of times in the Coast Guard before you took off, 
that you would always spool in the approach, you know, mm-hmm. the best precision approach before you take off because it's just good IFR thinking. But for a visual VFR pilot, if you have to consciously think about what approach I'm going to do before I take off because the weather is such that that's something you're thinking about, <laughs> don't take off. Not today. You know, so it's, it's, it's a different world. And, yeah. and, and just remembering those differences is important uh, to keep the rotors turning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much for your, um, you know, willingness to have us come up at uh, HII and just sit around and drink beers and talk helicopters because this is absolutely what, what we love to do. And uh, hopefully, I, I think our listeners definitely got something out of it today. Uh, I know I certainly did. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Um, yeah, we normally like to end every episode with, hey, what aviation advice would you give uh, young young Chris Hill or some other, you know, uh, pilot or mechanic or, you know, nurse out there that's that's listening? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, it's been an honor. It's the next best thing to flying, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just being able to sit here and talk about flying. Yeah. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, you know, I saw examples of folks doing this and I kind of picked up on it and a few people said it, more than one person to give them credit is, be, be the master of your craft. You know, you're never, never stop learning and never settle for second best. You know, I mean, I had an XO, Petros, and I talked about before. He wanted mm-hmm. to get the best score on the exam every year for the standardization exam. And, and he, he lifted everybody else up with him. And just everything you do, be the best at it. If you're the urinalysis control officer, as demeaning as that feels, just be the best one you could ever be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, answering the desk, you know, be the best secretary you can be, you know, and everything that you do, it, it'll eventually rub off and you'll realize that, Hey, this, this person, Kenny and Sam, they're the go-to guys on this. Mm-hmm. But so I, I certainly have failed many times to be the best, but I certainly uh, learned a lot for those who who's clearly were the best. And I'm, and I hope that I'm striving and setting the example for the future generation that don't give up, always, always get better and be the master of your craft. Well, great. Awesome. Great uh, parting words there. All right. Well, thanks, sir. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care. We say goodbye, but now-